Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Uh, We're going to be considering together uh, the idea of relating to Christians who don't necessarily agree with us on disputable matters. Uh, You can find Romans chapter 14 on page 892 in your pew Bible if you're using one. So grab one and, and turn there. The reality is that when God saves a person, he saves them into uh, the, the church, right? He, he, doesn't save, uh, he doesn't save people uh, into a prolonged life of isolation as an individual Christian. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't save people and then immediately uh, transport them Uh, directly to heaven to be in his presence. I suppose it's possible, uh, although not the norm, that uh, that God uh, could save a person and then right immediately they die and they go to be with Jesus. Um, But except in those rarest of circumstances, when God saves a person, he saves them into his church to, to live out the rest of their lives as Christians in community with other Christians. That's the, that's the Christian, the normative Christian life that God intends for his people in community with other Christians. Now, in one sense, that is super easy, piece of cake, because uh, we all uh, agree on a lot of really big, important things. If you're a Christian, then by definition, you agree with other Christians on some very important things like uh, who God is, that he is eternal, triune, infinite, personal, sovereign, good. We all agree who man is, created by God in his image to enjoy him and reflect his glory. We all agree that we have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We agree on the person and work of Jesus, that he is fully God and fully man, that he lived a perfect life of active obedience, that he died a sacrificial death to satisfy the wrath of God and atone for our sins. We agree on justification by faith, that in order to be saved, you have to turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus. There are, there's a whole host of core beliefs that we all hold in common. So in, in that sense, it's kind of very easy to live uh, in Christian community with other Christians because we all believe those same things. But there are also a host of other non-essential, disputable matters that arise during the course of the Christian life. Matters of conscience. I think this is, this is wrong. Matters of preference. I, would, I like to do this. I would prefer to do, do this. Right? And so the question is, how do Christians who are called by God to live together in the church, how do they handle those non-essential, those disputable matters? How do we coexist in the same body with other Christians who don't uh, think exactly like we do on those issues? What do you do when you get a bunch of people from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, family history, traditions, experiences, young, old, rich, poor, Republican, Democrat, jocks, nerds, artists, Right? All these people, all these different places, now all of a sudden they believe in Jesus, they're in the church together, they have to learn to be together. They all agree on Jesus, but they don't necessarily agree on everything else. Right? Some are really, really strict on movies and, and music and what you can watch and, and not watch. Some are, uh, some are really strict on alcohol. Don't drink it at all. Others are, are, are you know, some enjoy it. And not talking about getting drunk or, or drinking and driving or drinking under any things that are illegal or that are that are sinful, but just uh, you know, having a glass of wine with dinner or a beer after you cut the grass or something, right? So non so disputable matter, uh, public school, private school, home school, right? Matters that people care about, they're really invested in, but but are, are disputable, and, and not all Christians agree. The Sabbath, are you allowed to work on Sunday or, or not? 
What if you, you know, have an essential job that, you know, you know, it safe, you know, you have to work for the for the safety of your, you know, fellow people. Injustice in the world, right? Uh, we all agree that it's it's wrong to be indifferent to injustice and the suffering of other people, but how do we decide what is and is not just and where is the line and what exactly should we do about it when the line has been crossed? Not everyone agrees. Carbon footprint. Do you recycle? Paper or plastic? What's the gas mileage in your car? Money. How much money, like, when you, how much is too much for one person to have if they're living uh, adjacent to people who don't have enough? Disputable matters. Is, are you allowed to spank your kids? Or is that child abuse? Are you allowed to not spank your kids? Or is that parental uh, in, indifference? I don't know. You know, on and on. Uh, are you allowed to speak in tongues or not? Are you allowed to buy stuff that was made in China? Uh, or is that you're supporting, you know, human rights violations? Can you feed your, feed your baby formula? Or is it only, you know, nursing? High fructose corn syrup. I don't know, right? You can go on and on, right? Um... You know, the, the, uh, the nature of living life here in this world is that we're going to come across all sorts of matters that people don't necessarily disagree on. And some people are going to have very strong opinions and very heightened sensitivities to particular things that they care a lot about. And so how do we uh, live together when we don't all... Who decides who's right and who's wrong, and what do we do if we don't agree? That's Romans 14, Right? I mean, we've been dealing with a lot of objective doctrine in Romans 1 through 11, a lot of objective, this is what you, this is who God is, and this is who you are, and what you're to believe about God. Objective application in Romans 12 and 13, this is how you are to, you know, live in these situations, relate to these people. But Romans 14 is about what do we do in those other disputable matters where it's not necessarily clear. Paul's writing to a church that is a mixed entity filled with Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And we're going to see uh, two issues that he zeroes in on that, that seemingly are aimed at both of them respectively, right? Um, there's a lot of Gentiles in the church in Rome that were converted out of pagan idolatry, right? The worship of false gods. And man, if you read about uh, Roman paganism, it's grotesque. I mean, if you think that, like, the world has, you know, kind of descended into immorality now, read about Roman paganism, the, the, the kinds of things that would happen at these worship services to these false gods was uh, de- despicable. And so, one common practice uh, in Roman paganism was they would uh, sacrifice an animal to an idol, dedicate the meat to an idol, and then go and sell the meat kind of in the marketplace, in the grocery store. And, and the idea was whoever buys the meat, knowingly or unknowingly, is, is effectively supporting uh, and, and therefore indirectly worshiping the idol that uh, it was sacrificed to. And so Gentiles would be, Gentile Christians would be saved out of this pagan Mindset, and they would say, "Yeah, I'm not eating that meat. I'm not going into this marketplace and buying meat. I've lived in that world for too long. God saved me out of that world. I'm never going back. I'm never getting within a million miles of it. So I'm not going to eat uh, meat that was sacrificed to idols." And then Jewish Christians would come along and say, "What's the? You guys are freaking out over nothing. It's fake. It's all fake." The, the idols are fake. It's some, some knucklehead carved it out of wood. It means not, it's, it's fake. So you can eat whatever meat you want. There, it doesn't matter. You're not, you're, if there's no such thing as, as fake, false gods. Get over yourselves. And the Jewish Christians would, I'm, I'm going to feel freedom to eat. And the Gentile Christians, I don't know if I, if I can. There's an issue. But it works, they work the other way too. Because the, the next issue that he deals with, we'll see, is uh, the, the Jewish Christians... They had spent their entire lives as Old Testament Jews, 
uh, honoring all of these Sabbath days and special feasts, and you have to, it's meticulous, and you have to stop working and stop using, you know, uh, uh, conveniences at this exact time, right before dusk, and it goes through, and, and if, you do, if you accidentally work on the day, if you do something you weren't supposed to do on a day when you weren't supposed to do it, it's a really big deal. They, they cared a lot about that, and so they're like really careful about honoring these Sabbath days and feast days, and the Gentile Christians are like, oh, you guys are... You guys are stuck in the old covenant, man. We are free in Christ, so I'm going to feel like I'm going to go to work on the Sabbath. I'm going to make time and a half. I'm going to I'm going to live it up. You guys need to get over yourselves, right? So we have issues with different Christians whose consciences will or will not allow them to do different things. Now, not we're not talking about issues of clear-cut sin against God, rebellion against God. But issues where Christians simply say, look, I think that they're, I'm scandalized by them. They may not be uh, objectively wrong, but it, it's, it's like, I can't, like, am, am, I can't get over the fact that, that it's being done in my presence. I couldn't do it myself, and I couldn't get over the fact that someone else could think that it's okay to do it. And so, right, the questions are, how much of a right do I have um, to enjoy the freedoms that you think are wrong, and how much of a right do I have to ask or insist that you refrain from doing the things that I think are wrong? And that's Romans 14. That's what we're going to deal with this week and and next week. So I'm going to read through verses 1 through 12. And then we're going to consider how to relate to Christians who don't necessarily agree with us on these disputable matters. It says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person only eats vegetables. Let no one, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, because God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We belong to him. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we humbly ask that you would bless these next few minutes as we study your word together. Lord, we pray that you would, uh, that your Holy Spirit would would, uh, come here among us and speak to us and teach us And we pray that we could listen and obey. it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. He says you're going to encounter all kinds of Christians during the course of your life as a believer of all different stripes, different varieties, different maturity levels, and your goal, your default posture should be to welcome them. Greetings. Hello. 
I, you believe in Jesus, that's wonderful, I do too, let's celebrate what we both believe about Jesus together, and don't just welcome them so that you can quarrel and fight, right? It's, it's, a, it's a genuine, earnest welcome, I love you, not welcome, right, battle stations, what do you think about, you know, whatever, right, masks, vaccines, right, whatever it is, like, you know, it's not like, let's quarrel immediately, I need to know if you're an ally or an enemy, it's, it's, uh, I want to welcome you into fellowship, not to quarrel with you, but to enjoy and to relate to you. Verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables, so now we're getting some clarity on uh, what exactly is a weak person and what exactly is a strong person or, or a person with a weak conscience uh, as opposed to a person with a stronger conscience, right? The, the, um, the person who recognizes that they are free in Christ to eat anything that they want, Paul kind of locates that as a uh, strong person, a person with a strong conscience, and the person who is unsure or still timid, still worried about eating food that may have been sacrificed to, to an idol, even though the gospel affords him freedom to do just that, that person has a weak conscience. Which is interesting because a lot of times, if you kind of, you know, look at someone's, look at the tone and posture of someone who is rebuking and, you know, just telling everyone around them what they need to be doing and how they need to be doing better, right? If you, if you walk into a room and you see one Christian eating a cheeseburger, drinking a beer, watching a movie, and then another Christian walks up to him and says, how dare you? You're not allowed to do any of that stuff. Those things are wrong. Those things are sins against God. And then you go to that guy who just did the rebuking and say, hey, quick question. Between the two of you, between you and that guy that you were just, you know, rebuking, which one of you is the stronger, more mature Christian, and which one of you is the weaker, less mature Christian? My guess is that he would say, well, obviously I am the stronger, more mature Christian. I'm the one, I'm the holier one. I'm the one who avoids more sins. I'm the, vo- I'm the one who avoids more behaviors that are adjacent to sins, and so I'm the stronger one. And Paul is saying, no, that, that's actually... Uh, the, the stronger one is the person who rightly recognizes the freedom that they have in Christ to enjoy these liberties. And the weaker one is the one who, despite having been told by God that it's okay, is still unsure about whether it actually is uh, okay. So we should aspire to be stronger and have stronger consciences, but it's also perfectly fine, perfectly okay, to have a weaker conscience. That's totally okay provided that you recognize it as, as such, right? If you have a weaker conscience, perfectly fine, but just don't go strutting around, you know, thinking that you are the strong one and acting like you are the strong one when re- in reality, according to Paul, you are the one with the, with the weaker conscience. Now, uh, before we move on and kind of tackle the rest of the passage, just a couple of qualifiers about this idea of strong versus weak, stronger consciences versus weaker consciences, and kind of what they mean and kind of how, how some, some practical matters for them. So again, first, uh, first qualifier is that we are talking specifically about uh, matters of opinion. Verse 1, right? Uh, for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him not to quarrel over opinions. We're talking about disputable matters that are not particularly clear in Scripture, right? A matter that's clear in Scripture is no longer a matter of opinion. It's just a matter of objective sin versus righteousness. So Paul says you can disagree over opinions. You can agree to disagree, and you can let each one be fully convinced in their own mind of their respective positions. Again, things like eating meat or not, observing particular days on the calendar or not. But there's other matters that are not matters of opinion that are more clear, and they require Christians to be intentional and proactive and uh, you know specific in how they confront one another. They're, in, in matters of sin and righteousness that are clear, it's not a matter of agree to disagree. It's not a matter of coexist and each person be fully convinced in their own mind. This is why we see other verses like, Luke 17, if someone sins, rebuke him. 
right? So, so Romans 14 is kind of saying, live and let live. Don't, don't bust everyone's chops for every little thing. Opinions. Luke 17, if someone sins, rebuke him. We're talking about clear sins. Jude 23, when someone sins, save them by snatching them out of the fire. 1 Corinthians 5, when someone commits an egregious sin, let him who has done this be removed from among you. That's church discipline, excommunication. Matthew 18, when someone sins, go to him. If they don't listen and it escalates and gets far enough, eventually you remove them from the church and you treat them like you would an unbeliever. That's excommunication. That's church discipline. So Christians are not called to coexist and agree to disagree on matters where there's a clear... Uh, sin against God. That calls for a clear, firm, right? If someone were to say, look, you like to go to your job, earn your salary, pay your taxes, and that's fine for you. I prefer to sell drugs illegally. Let each of us be convinced in their own mind. You like to wait in line nicely at the grocery store behind the nice old lady. I like to shove her to the ground and get in front of her. So we're like, let's agree to disagree, right? It's it's fine for you to marry a member of the opposite sex. That's your preference. I prefer to be in a relationship with a member of the same sex. Let each of us be convinced in our own minds we can welcome and affirm one another, right? There there are issues that are not uh, live and let live, agree to disagree, right? Let's each be fully convinced in our own minds. There are some matters that are clearly uh, sin. And so the nature of being a church member is that we react, we, we, we are proactive and intentional in how we press into each other's lives, disciple one another, confront one another, admonish one another when there's matters of sin and rebellion against God's word. But that's different than when there are disputable matters of preference and opinion where we're called to be united even if we don't necessarily agree. So that's one qualifier. A second qualifier is you shouldn't read Romans 14 and see, all right, well, see how it says that the one who abstains is the weaker brother and the one who enjoys is the stronger brother. Therefore, that means that it, I should always enjoy and indulge in everything that I can right up to the line of where sin is. Because that's what the strongest, that's what the people with the strongest consciences do. They, they like avail themselves of every possible luxury and every possible uh, enjoyment that they can. As if it's somehow bad or wrong or weak or legalistic to voluntarily stay away from some behavior. Even behaviors that are not necessarily bad, not necessarily wrong. Romans 14 is not saying that it's wrong to avoid certain behaviors on, around disputable matters just because that's weak as opposed to, to strong. There are plenty of things. I mean, I could think of tons, but there are plenty of things that are not necessarily sinful, things that Christians are free to do, but if someone were to come and ask me for counsel... I would tell them, yeah, it's probably better just to not do that thing. It's not that you're not allowed to. It, I can't, uh, you know, show you a verse and insist under threat of church discipline that, that you, you cannot do that thing. But look, if you're asking for my advice, I wouldn't do it. I don't do it. I wouldn't do it if I were you. You know, just take that for what it's worth. I, you know, it's totally appropriate for a Christian to say, I'm going to, here's a rule. I don't see it in the Bible, but here's a rule. I'm going to impose it on myself because I want to, because I think it'll help me grow spiritually. My conscience would be bothered if I didn't, right? That's not necessarily legalism. That's not being weak or self-righteous. It's, it, sometimes that's just being disciplined and pursuing godliness. If someone says, I am going to... I'm not going to drink alcohol. I'm not going to drink caffeine. I'm not going to drink soda. I'm not going to eat candy. I'm not going to eat fried, whatever, right? Like, I don't, I am not going to do these things. I don't necessarily, I don't think that they are necessarily wrong. 
I don't think that every Christian has to do it like I do it, but I am going to refrain from them because I want to, and I think it's going to help me walk with Jesus. If, that's, if you want to have rules like that in your life, by all means, that is excellent. Go for it, right? I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. every morning and read my Bible. All right, well, is it sinful to sleep another hour or two? Of course not. Is it good and commendable? For that person to practice that particular discipline, absolutely it, it is. Right? There's all kinds of personal disciplines that someone may decide to employ, and they're perfectly welcome to do it. It's probably for their own good. I'm going to cut out television. I'm going to cut out you know, meet social media. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to limit these things to 30 minutes a day, but I'm only going to do it after I uh, read a good book that nourishes my soul for 60 minutes first. Whatever, right? Make up whatever rule you want. Impose it on yourself. That's not bad. In fact, it's good. But as you do, there are two. So that's so yeah, the first qualifier is we're talking about opinions and not sins. The second qualifier is sometimes it's good to kind of be the, the, the weaker uh, Christian that we see here. Provided that these two, you know, you have to keep these two kind of nuances in mind. The first is that as you, if you want to come up with these rules for, for discipline in your life and to try to help you walk with Jesus, that's great, um, but don't impose them on other people, right? So you don't say, I've decided I'm, I've decided I'm going to cut out caffeine because, you know, I think that might help me walk with Jesus, and everyone else has to do that too. If they don't, I'm going to judge them, I'm going to criticize them, I'm going to make them feel bad, that violates the spirit of Romans 14. So yeah, make up your rules, make up disciplines. I would encourage you, I, I do that. I, mean, I, I, from time to time, have different disciplines and kind of self-imposed rules that I try to you know, kind of put on my, my life. So by all means, do it. Just don't dogmatize it and command others to do it with you. So that's one thing to avoid about you know, kind of having these rules or disciplines. And the other is, even if you never dogmatize it, even if you never uh, impose it on others and, and command them to follow your rules with you, even if you never do that, there's another danger also, which is make sure that you don't drift over time and start to think that your relationship with God, your standing before God, is somehow rooted in or tethered to how well you are keeping all of the rules that you made up for yourselves, as opposed to your standing before God being rooted in Jesus and his righteousness and his death and his resurrection, right? It's, 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 it, that's, it's a trap that's easy to fall into. It's good to be disciplined. It's good to impose disciplines on yourself for the purpose of growing in godliness. But it's bad to think... Look at all the rules, and look how good I am at keeping them. Look how I read my Bible every day. I never miss a day. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't watch movies or TV. Look how awesome I am. No wonder God loves me. I'm pretty awesome. How could he not? Look at how good I am at keeping all of the rules. That's a very real danger that comes with having rules. So, so by all means, have rules. It's not bad to be the weaker uh, Christian here. But don't impose them on others and don't uh, drift into thinking that God loves you more because of how well you uh, keep the rules that you have imposed on yourself. Now, in verse 3 and following, uh, we kind of see some, uh, Paul kind of uh, articulates some tendencies that the human heart is going to have in how it relates sinfully to people who disagree with it on these disputable matters. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So how might a human heart react sinfully to another Christian who disagrees with it on, on disputable matters, right? The weaker person is going to look at the stronger person and be tempted to pass judgment. And the stronger person will look at the weaker person and be tempted to despise them. 
meaning. Right? The weaker brother. I have cut out alcohol. I, right, because of how much I love Jesus. I have decided that if anyone wants to love and honor Jesus, then they should cut out alcohol too. Well, look what we have here, right? Some guy enjoying a beer at a baseball game or a glass of wine with his fettuccine Alfredo. Sinner, right? You're not obeying God. You're not loving God. You're not honoring God. Right? Again, fill in the, fill in the, right? We decided not to send our kids to public school so they could be educated by the sons of the devil. So you, right? And what do we have here? A public school family. Sinner, right? Probably watch Harry Potter. How dare you, right? So, so, uh, the person who abstains is going to be tempted to pass judgment on the person who eats and say that they're in sin, say that they're not as godly. So that's the, that's the sin, that, that you, that's the temptation to sin that you need to be aware of and guard against in matters where, you know, your conscience is weaker or you have a more restrictive conscience, which is fine, but just be, be, be on guard against that sin. The person who has the more permissive conscience, who lets him enjoy those freedoms, is going to be tempted to despise people who don't. Want to come to our monthly guys' night? Everyone brings their favorite drink. This guy who brews his own beer or um, mead or what? Right? You know, we smoke cigars, we play poker. Eh, that's okay. I appreciate the invite. I got a thing about gambling. My dad had a gambling problem when I was a kid. It really affected our family. I have a, I have a history with addictions, so I try to stay away from things that could be habit-forming. Nerd, loser, right? Like, what a weirdo. What an uptight, religious, fundamentalist. He's probably judging us right now. He doesn't even realize that the things that we're doing are totally fine. That guy's a, a jerk, right? The person who eats is going to be tempted to despise the person who abstains. And Paul says, be on guard against that particular sin. Anticipate it and guard against it. In areas where you have a more restrictive conscience, that's great. It's commendable. It's probably preferable. But don't judge people who don't. And in the areas where you have a more permissive conscience and you want to enjoy the freedoms that God has given you, that's great, that's fine, but don't despise the people who don't agree with you there. And here's the reason why God, why Paul says, why God says not to despise and not to judge. For the, for, it's because God has welcomed him. Last bit of verse 3. Don't despise, don't judge, because God has welcomed him. So, so the reason why God says don't judge one another, don't despise one another, is because God himself has welcomed us. The Christian who's rigorous and ruthless in all of the things that he abstains from, right? God has welcomed him to himself. And the Christian who is bold to enjoy all of the freedoms that God has given him, God has welcomed him to himself. God welcomes both of them to himself. And so God wants both of them to welcome one another to each, each other. Think about how absurd this is. Think about how absurd it is for, for a human being, a creature, a created being, to, right, to, to cast out on behalf of God, right, to, to, to say, I'm going to do this for God. I, I'm actually going to have a higher standard of righteousness than God himself has. I'm going to have a higher standard of what's required to be in relationship with God than God has himself. That's absurd. To, to look at someone and say, I believe that God loves you, that God has welcomed you, that Jesus has died for you, that God has imputed the righteousness of Christ to you, that God has reconciled you to himself for all of eternity, but you're not quite good enough for me to welcome you. Your theology is not quite good enough. Your behavior and your choices are not quite good enough for me, I know God has welcomed you, but I don't think that I can because I'm not sure that you measure up to my standard. That's absurd. That's like, so this is a theological matter that, um, you know, I'm, uh, yeah, it's, 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 sometimes it's 
There, there are plenty of guys who agree with me on, on the matters of baptism and, and membership, but um, plenty, plenty that don't. So um, here's an example. I am I'm about as, as committed of a credo Baptist as you will find, meaning that I think that the sacrament of baptism should be applied to believers, to people who put their trust in Jesus and make a profession of faith. I think that's the people that the church should baptize. Now, there are other Christians who believe that the church should baptize people who trust in Jesus, make a profession of faith like I do, and also their infant children right when they're born. Right? That, they, that if, if the parents are members in good standing in the church, then when their children are born, we baptize their children. So I don't personally hold that position, but there are Christians who do. Now, here's, here's where it's relevant. Here's where it gets tricky. If you go to a, a paedo-baptist church, an infant-baptist church, and you want, to, you want to become a member, they'll ask you, well, have you been baptized? And if you say no, then they'll say, great. Let's baptize you and you can become a member. No problem. If you say, yes, I was baptized as a believer at my previous church when I became a member, then that, that Pado baptist church will say, great, you can become a member. That baptism's good here. Or if you say, yes, I was baptized. My parents were believers before I was born. They were members of a church and they had me baptized at that church as an infant. Then that Pado baptist church will say, great, that baptism's good here. Come on in, right? So, Pretty straightforward, pretty clean, easy, no problem. Now, uh, here's how credo Baptists handle it. And again, this is me. So, but this is kind of why I'm a, a little bit of a black sheep in some credo Baptist circles. Um, if you go to a credo Baptist church and say, I want to become a member, they'll say, just like the other one, have you been baptized? And if you say no, they will say, great, let us baptize you and you can become a member, just like the Pado Baptist church. And if you say, yes, I was baptized as a believer at my previous church when I became a member, then they'll say, great, you can become a member. That baptism's good here, just like the Pado Baptist Church. But if you were to say, yes, I have been baptized. My parents were believers. They were members of a church before I was born, and they baptized me right when I was born as an infant. Then that Credo Baptist Church will likely say, okay, I'm not sure if you realize this or not. I don't mean to like surprise you here, but you have not been baptized. Because baptism, by definition, can only be done to a believer after they make their profession of faith. So when you were two weeks old, or whatever, you didn't get baptized, you just got wet. So if you want to be a member here, you need to be baptized. Not re-baptized, which would imply that you were baptized when you were an infant, but you just need to be baptized. And then the person might say, well, I want to be a member here. Uh, but my conscience won't permit me to get what I understand to be rebaptized because I understand what happened as an infant to actually have been a valid baptism. And then that Baptist church would be in a precarious position where they effectively have to say, then I guess you can't be a member here. We love you. We think that you're a Christian. We recognize you as a fellow believer. We think that God has welcomed you as a member of his church but we are not going to welcome you as a member of our church. It's a gutsy position to hold. I don't hold it, which is why I'm a black sheep in some credo-baptist circles, despite the fact that I affirm credo-baptism. But I personally think that if someone makes a profession of faith, uh, if they've been baptized either as a believer or as an infant, then that church should go ahead and welcome them uh, as a, a member, which is what this church uh, believes too. In God's providence, this church believed that before I, I got here. So, um, but that's just an example, right, of like uh, this text of welcoming others because God has welcomed them is a big part of why, even though I don't necessarily think that infant baptism is valid, I still would welcome as a member or be supportive of welcoming as a member someone who was baptized as an infant because of verse 3 right here. And he says, Who are you, verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, right? 
You don't go to someone else's business and just walk back behind the counter and start bossing their employees around and telling them what to do and what not to do. That's their bosses, right? The, the, the problem, the, 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 in the essence of what's happening when a Christian starts to dogmatize their preferences and their opinions on these disputable matters is that they are putting themselves in place of God, right? You're saying... You don't report to God. You're, God is not your master. You report to me. I'm the one who has the authority to pass judgment on you. I'm the one who says whether you're a faithful Christian or not. I'm the one who adjudicates all of these disputable matters. Are you indulging too much? Have you crossed the line? I get to say. Are you abstaining too much? Are you falling into legalism and self-righteousness? I get to say, I'm the king. I'm the boss. I'm the judge. And Paul is saying, Christian, you are not the boss. You are not the judge. God is the judge. And that person that is going to stand or fall based on his relationship with his own master, namely God, that person will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Meaning, if in fact we are really dealing with a disputable matter and not unrepentant sin, It's a big if, and sometimes it takes wisdom to parse that out. But if we're dealing with a disputable matter and not sin, then the strong person whose faith is enabling him to enjoy that freedom in Christ is not, uh, God is not going to judge him or condemn him for enjoying those freedoms. God will uphold him and cause him to stand. So if God will uphold him and help him to stand, then who are we as creatures to pass judgment where God has said no judgment needs to be passed? Verse 5. There's the other issue. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all the days alike. Right? So the, the beginning we were talking about Gentile believers and, and reservations about meat sacrificed to idols. Now it's Jewish believers and reservations about working or, uh, you know, recreating on a Sabbath day when you're not supposed to. Watching football on Sunday. You allowed to do that? I don't know. Better not say no today. So Paul says, don't, right, uh, if you're tempted to judge other Christians who have a more permissive conscience for being sacrilegious deviants who have the audacity of watching the Super Bowl repent of that sin, and if you're tempted to despise other Christians for being uptight and religious, then repent of that sin, because each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It's a disputable matter. It's not set in stone. You can agree to disagree. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats it in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. So, if you are a Christian with a weaker conscience, a more restrictive outlook, by all means... Make up all the rules you want and follow them and hold yourself to them. Be as strict and as ruthless with your own self and your own behavior as you can. There's nothing wrong with that. It's actually a good thing. Go ahead and follow it, right? Follow your rules. Observe your special days. Abstain from your food. Cut out alcohol. Cut out movies and screens. Do all that stuff that you want to do. Do it in honor of the Lord. And to the one who has a more permissive conscience, go ahead and enjoy your liberties. Watch the game. Eat a burger. Uh, have a glass of, watch Harry Potter, right? Do all this stuff you want to do. Do it to the Lord. Give thanks to God when you do it. Don't let it master you. Don't become addicted to it. If you want to have rules, have rules and honor God with them. If you want to enjoy your liberties, enjoy your liberties and honor God with them. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So here, this is kind of a, this is kind of a, uh, a guardrail that Paul's putting in place here. In verse 7, if you've gotten this far, if you're in verse 6, you've read verses 1 through 6, and your, your takeaway is, aha, see, I can do whatever I want to do. I can eat whatever I want. I can abstain if I want. No one can tell me what to do. 
I have the right to say and do whatever. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I am the king. If that's your takeaway from the first six verses, then verse 7 is here to correct you. Paul is saying, you are not the boss of your own life, and you are not the one who grants permission or decides to abstain and restrict as you see fit. Your primary goal, the chief end for which you were created, is not to please yourself or live for yourself or do what you want to do. The reality is you were created by God and your purpose is to live for God and to glorify God and to be satisfied in God. So the fact that we have some liberties to disagree on disputable matters does not mean that every person is an island unto themselves and every person is their own authority, judge, jury, executioner. It means that every person ultimately is very much accountable to God, the one who who created us. And we're accountable to God in every single area of our life, whether we live or whether we die. We are the Lord's. Right? So, so it's not just, uh, it's not just that, that there are some areas of our lives that should be submitted to the Lordship of Christ. It's that every area of our life, from the, all the way up until the moment that we die, all of it is submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And Paul says, if you doubt that, if you don't believe that, if you think that there's some area or some portion of your life that you have the right to withhold, and this is mine, and then God doesn't have any authority here, Paul says, all right, fine, I've got... Uh, receipts. I can show you why that's not the case. In verse 9, for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So Christ's lordship over your life extends all the way up to the very end of it, including including death. And that lordship, that exhaustive lordship over every area of your life, from the moment you're born to the moment you die, it was secured and established by these two infinitely significant events in Jesus' life. His death for sin on the cross and his resurrection from the dead in victory over Satan and sin and death. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then perhaps he would not have authority over your life and how you live it. But he did, so he does. If Jesus did not die on the cross, then perhaps he would not have authority over you in the moment of your death. But he did, so he does. Verse 10, So why do you then pass judgment on your brother? Weaker Christian who judges the more permissive? Or why do you despise your brother, stronger Christian, who, uh, d- you know, looks, d- who has the more permissive conscience? Right? The two things I've been railing against this whole time, explaining why you're to guard against them, why are you doing them? Right? You're acting like you're the judge, but you're not the judge. Jesus is. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul's saying, every single one of us is going to die and then face judgment. And the judgment that we're going to face is the judgment seat of God. Not the judgment seat of you or me. You didn't die on the cross to save other Christians from their sins. Jesus did. You weren't raised from the dead to give other Christians new life. Jesus was, which means that you are not the king and the boss and the judge of everyone else. Jesus is. So give them some time and some space. Let other Christians enjoy their liberties without judging them and let other Christians follow the rules that they have decided to keep for themselves without despising them. Because they belong to the Lord and not to you. The Lord is the one who will judge them, not you. And the more that we all come to realize that together, collectively, the more we will be able to live together in unity, even in the midst of 
diversity, even when we don't agree on all of these disputable matters. See, that's the thing. That's, that's, the, that's what's so remarkable about the nature of the, of the church, right? If these disputable matters didn't exist, if we all believed the exact same thing from top to bottom, A to Z, believed the same things, thought the same things, handled every situation in exactly the same way, we all dressed the same, acted the same, identical tendencies and preferences, if that's what the church looked like, then it would not be all that remarkable for the church to be unified. There are plenty of groups that are unified, plenty of groups that have manufactured unity around a coerced uniformity. Right? We're all all together because we're all the same. A ton of groups like that. Uh, Biker gangs, right? Uh, Sports teams, cliques clubs, tribes, right? We're all exactly the same, and therefore we're all united together. There's nothing special about that. There's nothing remarkable or supernatural about that. But Paul says the church is different. It's better. It's supernatural because the church, through the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is to have unity even in the midst of diversity, Unity existing within a group of people that don't all think the same, look the same, act the same. They believe the same core doctrines. 1 Corinthians 15, that which is of first importance, the glory of God, the person and work of Jesus, justification by faith. They all believe those core things together, and they hold one another accountable as a community to persevere in believing those together. But then on all the other disputable matters, there's a wealth of diversity. They think different things, they believe different things, they practice different things. Some have a lot of rules and disciplines, and that's great. Some have a lot of freedoms and liberties, and that's great. And they all live together, united together, in spite of those differences, because they all love Jesus more than they love their own preferences. They all bow their knee to King Jesus instead of thinking that they are the king and that everyone else has to bow their knee to them. And that's how Christians can love one another and be united together with other Christians, even when they disagree on disputable matters. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel, for for all of those infinitely important doctrines that we all agree on the glory of God the sinfulness of sin the person and work of Christ justification by faith God we pray that we could hold them together believe them together love them together defend them together and Lord on all of these other matters these disputable matters we pray that we can love one another even when we don't agree we pray that we could Uh, disagree agreeably and that we could have unity in the gospel even in the midst of diversity of preferences. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.